And the rest of us, we can jump into the book of James. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. This is where we've been for the last few months now, and uh, we have two weeks left in it. So we're in James chapter 5 today. And uh, I'm excited to finish off this series and uh, see what God has next for us. And I'm excited for next Sunday as well, where we finally get to be outside with no masks. Who's excited for that? I know, we're, we're all looking forward to the day. Uh, July 1st is coming, everything's lifted, so that's great news. Now, before we jump into the Word of God today, I'm just going to invite you uh, to pray with me. And maybe let's just stand together as we pray and come before the Word of God. Gracious God, we come before you. And Lord, we are honored that you are a God who would reveal yourself to us. That you are a God who desires to guide us and instruct us and empower us through this life. And we know that this word is a, a light unto our path. Your word guides us, it directs us, it gives us wisdom, Lord, because you speak to us through it. And so we pray that as we approach the scripture today, Lord, that you would speak to us as your people that your word would transform our hearts and our minds so that we would be a people who glorify you in all things, so that your kingdom would advance here in this place on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this would all be done for your glory and for your great name. And in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Amen. So we're going to be in James... Five, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses, and then we're going to be jumping into the second half of chapter James uh, next Sunday. Now, let me ask this question. The, the big framework that James has been working with is what? That faith without works is dead, right? Let's all say it together. Faith without works is dead. And James's biggest concept throughout this, this letter that he's writing is that when we exercise a faith in Jesus, it brings a transformation to our life. And a lot of what James has been talking about is guiding us and instructing us, saying, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like to live a life of wisdom. This is the path to which you are called. This is the character you are supposed to emulate. And this is the, the aspects that James is going to bring out for us this morning. He's going to say that the call of the church, the call of the people of God is, first of all, that we need to be what? What does it say up there? We need to be generous. We, we share the generous heart of God. The second thing he says the church needs to be is we need to be patient. Who struggled with that this past year? <laughs> the third thing that... James says the church needs to be is united. He says when pressures come, when struggles come, when threats come, the, the greatest desire of God is for the church to be united. And, and so we're going to be looking at this scripture together this morning to, to hear what God has for us. And, and as we look at these statements, first of all, I need to clarify something. Because these statements all are about be generous, be patient, be united. But the only way we can be something is if we are truly united and one in Christ. 
And this is the motivation which we function out of. It's, it's when we are united in Christ, when we are experience the oneness of God, that we truly are transformed. And so let's process from that perspective. And so let's begin, first of all, in verses 1 to 6. What does James say in verses 1 to 6? He says, Come now, you rich. Now, first of all, we, we need to clarify something here. Who is the rich people that James is talking about? We're going we're gonna to process that together in a second. But he says, come now, you rich. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Sounds pretty intense, doesn't it? Okay, James is getting intense now. Okay, what's going on here? He says, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. So what's the image? What happens when a garment is moth-eaten? What, that, what does that say about the garment? It, it's been destroyed because it's just sat there. It hasn't been used, right? And then he says, your gold and silver have corroded. Now, can gold and silver corrode? Can it actually rust? No, that's one of the things that makes it so valuable. So he's given this imagery. He's saying, your gold and silver have metaphorically become meaningless and worthless. And he says this. He says, their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Okay? Intense language. I'm going to describe it. Don't worry. He says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Verse 4, behold the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So what is going on? This is pretty harsh language, isn't it? This is very harsh language, which probably gives us the understanding something very serious is going on here. And, and verse 6 gives us a glimmer into what James is speaking about. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Who do you think the righteous person that James is talking about? Jesus, right? So who's he giving us an indication to? Historically, who are the people that plotted against Jesus? Who are the people that Jesus spoke harshly against and ultimately led to the plot of his murder and death? Any guesses? Yeah, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, right? There, were, there was these religious leaders in Israel who were taking advantage of people and taking advantage of the temple system to the point where what does Jesus come and do? How does he speak to these people? What's, what's a profound image of Jesus getting very angry with the people, the religious leaders? He clears the temple, right? 
He goes in the temples and he starts flipping tables. Why? And he says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer and you guys are taking advantage of all these pilgrimages. You guys are taking advantage of the sacrificial system. You guys are taking advantage of people who are simply trying to come to God to worship, right? And so James gives us this description of exactly what Jesus was talking about. That there's, there's all this riches stored up for these religious leaders. And, and James says, all this wealth is actually going to be evidence against you. You're going to be judged in light of all these things that they have. And so all the, the clothes they don't wear, all the money they have selfishly stashed away, all the acts of injustice against those who have helped them, all the ways they have disadvantaged the vulnerable, James says, you unjust rich people are going to be held into account for all this injustices. That's, that's this main thrust of verses 1 to 6. Now, the question for us, here we are sitting in this room, what does this mean for us? What are we going to do with us? I, I mean, is, is James speaking to us directly as a community? No, we're sort of indirect hearers of what James is attacking. And I mean, it almost makes us uncomfortable with how blunt he's getting, doesn't it? Who here feels a little uncomfortable hearing this language, right? Oh, no one does? Okay, I'll just go harder into it then, sweet. <laughs> but, but James is, is bringing something out. And, and what we want to do with passages like this is we say, well, that was their problem. It's not our problem. But here's what we always must do under the weight of Scripture, saying, God, what are you trying to reveal to us? God, what are you trying to teach us? God, what are you trying to expose as a lesson to us? And so, I think we, we get a glimpse here at the character of God. And it teaches us some of the things that God is very much against, we learn some of what God cares about. We, we learn some of what, what angers God. And, and the big thing that James is pointing out is when those who are rich or in power and control exploit those who are poor or vulnerable. And, and what we learn in a passage like this is that we as a church are called not to be this, but instead... We're called to exercise a righteous generosity. A righteous generosity. This is how we share the heart of God. This is how we share the desires of God. Now, now I've given a, a definition of righteousness that I've said a few times here. And it's from a, one of the top Old Testament scholars, a guy named Bruce Waltke. And he defines righteous like this. He says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of the community. Does that make sense? The righteous people are people who are willing to disadvantage themselves and so that the community can be advantaged. The wicked, on the other hand, do you guys remember this? Are people who advantage who? Themselves for the disadvantage of the community, Right? That's the, that's the language of righteousness in, in Old Testament 
language, right? And so this is the premise that James is coming with, is we need to exercise a righteous generosity towards others. And so even think of generosity itself. What are some, what are some opposite terms of generosity? If you're not generous, what are you? You're selfish, you're greedy, you're rude, yeah. you're thoughtless, self-serving, right? You're stingy, pardon? Is that a word? Did you just make up a word, George? <laughs> Maybe it's your mask that I can't understand what it is. What are you saying, George? I still don't know what that means. It's, it's an ultra, ultra, I know what you're talking about anyway, George. We'll, we'll make up that language later. <laughs> but yeah, you, you guys are all on the right road. And, and, and this is what James wants us to realize, is that anything other than generosity, the other direction is exactly the opposite of the character of God, isn't it? Our God is a very generous God, amen? He's an extremely generous God. And when we start processing the character of God and who we are to relationship with Him, we can't help but be a people of generosity. And this, this sort of begs the question, then, why do we struggle with righteousness why do we struggle with generosity? Why is it so difficult for us to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others? Now, there's, obviously, there's boundaries to set there, but, but this is concepts that face us. So, why are we not generous? Well, well think of this. If, if we were a group of people who, who didn't believe in God at all, who had no um, concept of worshiping the God of Christianity, how would we view our relationship to our own life and to our possessions? Well, first of all, if there's no God, who am I accountable to? Who does my life belong to? It's me. Me alone, right? I become my own authority. I become autonomous. No one has control over my life except for me. So I can do whatever I want and no one can tell me what to do, right? What, what, what does that say about uh, a relationship with things that we own then if there is no God? Well, then it means that everything I own is mine and it belongs to me. Not only that, but I'm the one who earned it, and so to give it away would be actually be wrong and unjust, right? That's a worldview of possessions apart from God. But on the other hand, what do we learn? If we are believers of God, if we believe in the gospel, if we believe in a Christian God, what does the Scriptures teach us? Well, first of all, do we own our own lives? No, who do our lives belong to? God. Did you create yourself? <laughs> it's this concept that confronts us because Romans 1.6 reminds us that we belong to God and even creation itself reminds us that we are not the creator, we are the created, right? We don't own our own lives. We don't own anything. And, and so 
what does this remind us then? It, it reminds us that we have a perspective that we function of, as owners over everything we have. We believe we own everything we have. All our possessions is what we've earned. It's what we own. It's our possession, right? But Scripture, on the other hand, doesn't say we're owners. It says you are actually stewards. Why? Because everything is whose? God's. And this is what Paul reminded the church in Corinth about. He reminded them by saying, everything you have is from God. There's nothing you have that isn't from God. Every good and perfect gift is, is from above. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, what do you have that wasn't given to you by God? Everything is a gift. It's all a gift. I mean, Hayden began to remind us of this last week in his sermon. And he began to ask us questions about life, like um, who had control whether they woke up this morning, right? Could anyone guarantee that they would wake up today? Who has this concept of creating air that we breathe? Did we create air to sustain us? No. Did you make your ears be able to hear? Did you make your mouth be able to speak? Did you make your legs be able to walk? What does that mean? We don't even have control or authority over our own autonomy, let alone everything else. And so James reminds us that for us to have a perspective of God, we have to realize that everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. And that changes everything, doesn't it? It changes perspective in how you use your time. It changes perspective in how you spend your money. It changes perspective on everything that's been given to you or everything that you've earned. It's coming to this humility and saying, everything is of God. Um, I, I think it's fascinating that we, we talk in terms of tithing, and, and I, this sort of comes from Old Testament language as well, and we talk in terms of tithing as sort of giving 10%. Has anyone ever heard of that concept before, right? And it's sort of a weird concept because that's like saying God has given us 100% and we're just giving Him 10% back. So really we're just saying, God, thank you for the 90% you've given us, right? It's sort of an upside-down view of how much God has given us. Where God has given us everything, everything should be used for God's purposes, for God's glory, right? And so this is where James, first of all, confronts the church. He says, the ways of God isn't to act selfishly or self-serving or greedily or, or unjustly to take advantage of others. Rather, the way of God is to be extremely generous. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of what it means to be the church. And it's, it's fascinating that um, God always gives us opportunities to be generous, hasn't He? Even this week, who had an opportunity to be generous, right? If you didn't put up your hand, you missed it. <laughs> there, there's always opportunities to be generous. There's always opportunities for us to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. Uh, even this week, uh, Hayden and I were, were sitting in the office. We had a, a guy named Daniel come, 
And he, he's a homeless guy who's been traveling all the way from Yellowknife. We saw him walking down to town hall, and we know that people are always breaking into town hall, so we sort of let him go down there. Then we walked to see what he was going to go steal. And uh, he was in there, and Hayden and I sort of came up on him, and I think we scared him a little bit. But and we're like, what are you doing, man? And obviously he had all these excuses, and we just we said, okay, we know you're here to steal stuff. We know you're here to do things you shouldn't be doing. But why are you doing this? And he began to share his story about growing up in foster homes, about the struggles he had with addiction, about the many ways that um, he struggled in life and how his life was falling apart. And we just heard from him. And, And God just opened up these small opportunities for us to be generous. We just grabbed all the food we could find in the church. We grabbed some money, cash that we had to give him. Uh, Even Jed and Michelle were traveling to the city, so I said, you know what? The best place for you to go is go to Hope Mission, get into the recovery program, start finding healing from addiction, and give your life to God. And so all of that just unfolded in a matter of hours. And, And God has always given us these opportunities just to be generous to, to disadvantage ourselves in some form or fashion so that others could find advantage and move forward in life, especially the generous. And, and this is the heart that James wants us to have as a church, is we need to be so generous that we're disadvantaging ourselves at times. That's what the heart he's giving. And so here, here's what James jumps into next. He says this, Now, he's speaking to a church who who many of them were on the vulnerable side. He's speaking to a church who many of them were experiencing being the disadvantaged. And this is what he tells them. He says, first of all, be what? Be? Be patient. Be patient. We're going to see a lot of injustice in this world. We're going to see a lot of people taken advantage of. We're going to experience hardships and threats at times as well. And James says, be patient. Be patient. We all struggle with patience, don't we? (laughs) We ask the question right away, well, how long do we have to be patient? And this is the answer that James gives us, and we're probably not going to like it. He says, this is how long you got to be patient. Until the coming of who? Till the coming of the Lord. How long has the church been waiting for that? <laughs> a few thousand years, right? That's a lot of patience. A lot of patience. And this is the imagery that James gives us to understand patience. He, well, first of all, patience, just in case you don't understand the word to its full extent, the, the Greek word for patience is, is this concept of long-passioned. Even long-angered or long-tempered is sort of the concept there. Now, we all know what it's like to be short-tempered, don't we? Who knows what it's like to be short-tempered? Yeah, who snaps pretty easy at things? Well, well patience is this aspect of, of long-passionate, long-anger. Don't, don't allow everything to boil up to the point where you explode, but allow those, those hardships and trials and that pressure you feel in life to be extended over a long period of time. And, and this is the image that James gives us. 
He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Now, there's a lot of farmers in this room. It takes a lot of patience to be a farmer, doesn't it? Especially in dry seasons when you're not getting enough water and you're like wondering what's going to happen and you feel so powerless and you feel so out of control and there's so much uncertainty and yet so often we see that what happens is the crop comes. It blossoms. Uh, Even this last week, uh, we planted a bunch of carrots this year and Rebecca was teaching Alethea how to weed out the carrots, right? And, and the assumption that Alethea got from that was, oh, the carrots are ready to be picked. And so next week she starts picking all these carrots out and they're this big, right? And, and sure, they, you can eat them to some extent, but they're, they're not ready. There, there's, there's a patience that has to come with, with farming. There's a patience that has to come with crops. There's a patience that has to come with gardening. And this is the reality that James gives us, is this is the way that God developed the world to, to function. This is the way that, that God even developed his, his church to function, is that we need to be patient with one another to see fruit be produced, doesn't it? Have you ever met someone in your life, or maybe you've even said this about yourself, or where you said, I wish they would just grow in maturity faster. <laughs> uh, any parents ever think that for their kids maybe? <laughs> or maybe we can use that in spiritual terms as well. Like, this person's been a Christian for 5, 10, 15 years. Like, wh- why aren't they at this point in their life? And, and James reminds us that when we have that perspective, all we do is get frustrated. All, all we do is condemn people rather than encourage them. But, but James says we need to be patient with one another. Our, our church is like this field, is this imagery where, where God is wanting us to produce all this great fruit, and it's going to take each of us different seasons, and it's going to take each of us di- different phases and stages of life to come into fruition of, of maturity. We, we can't rush fruitfulness, can we? And so James says, be, be patient. And here's the hard reality, and this is what James brings up next, is so often when we lose patience with one another, when we lose patience in our circumstances, what does it produce? This is what James says. He says, do not grumble against one another. When we lose patience... When external pressures come that challenge our patience, one of the most vulnerable areas in our lives become how we treat others. Anyone else experience a day, maybe you've had a really stressful day at work or a stressful day with the kids or whatever it may be, and then you find yourself more and more easily agitated, (laughs) right? That's because these external pressures are coming at us and it's affecting us to the point where the most vulnerable thing now becomes how we treat others. All these external pressures create these internal struggles. And I mean, is this not exactly what we experienced as a church for the last 16 months? 
All, all these external pressures, all these external threats, all these external challenges, all these external opinions, all they did was press in on us. And how many of us lost our patience and grumbled against each other, right? This word of James is so crucial for us to understand. It's so crucial for us to process because this is what we go through in our individual lives every day. This is what we go through as a church body as well. And, and, and here's, here's the big warning that James gives. He says, don't grumble against one another. In other words, don't start complaining against and, and challenging each other and fighting against each other and gossiping and slandering and, and disagreeing harshly with others. He says, don't grumble against another one another because here's the warning. So that you may not be, what? Judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, here's a deep reality we have to face. What is God going to judge us on in times where we struggle with patience and we grumble against one another? What is God going to judge us on? He's going to judge us on how well we treated one another and how we were united through difficult circumstances. That's a powerful image, isn't it? That's a powerful image. We want to ask the question, Okay, 16 months past this whole season. Next week, we're moving into complete normalcy again. The question is, what is God going to judge us on for those 16 months? What does James say? He's going to judge you on how patient you were, how you treated one another, and how united you were. It's a pretty interesting perspective, isn't it? It puts everything in a framework. It puts everything in a framework. And so here's, here's what's crucial for us to know. Um, are, are there going to be more challenges and threats and difficult seasons for us as a church ahead? Of course, yeah. <laughs> That's guaranteed in life, right? I mean, he's talking about suffering and way back when throughout the Old Testament, even in his context, we still face those same challenges today, Right? That's a given for us as a church. That's a given for the global church, right? And, and what James is saying, you have to make sure that it doesn't divide you. You have to make sure that a culture of grumbling against one another isn't there. Because this is what you're going to be judged on. Th this is what God is looking for. Again, when, when life gets frustrating, it's so easy to get irritable with one another, but God wants unity, God prays for unity, God judges us on unity. That, that's the perspective that James is coming at. And, and so this is another reminder that James gives us. He reminds us as we look to the past even, and this is verse 10. He says, as we look to the past, we can see plenty of examples of this throughout history, who individuals and people groups have worked through hardship and struggles and yet persevered in trust and faithfulness to God. And he says this, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, the prophets, did they have very good job descriptions? Like, who in this room would want to be a prophet? <laughs> None of us, right? 
Uh, their, their lives all ended in, in tragedy and hardship. They, they suffered through it all. They, they knew suffering. And, and, and this is one of the reasons I, I walked us through Habakkuk in this season. Because Habakkuk's whole concept was as him and his people are going through a time of testing and trials and uncertainty and they can't fathom what God is doing and, and what God is doing is completely against what they thought should be happening and yet how did Habakkuk end? With trust, with faith, with a patient endurance and righteous generosity and unity, understanding that God will move his people forward, right? The, the prophets are a beautiful example of what it means to find perseverance and generosity and righteousness and patience and forbearance and unity in some of the most difficult times the people of God have ever experienced. And James, is, or Job, he says, is another example of that as well. And so, we can look to the past to give us inspiration for the future. Now, here's the beautiful reality then. When we talk about the calls of generosity, when we call, talk about the call to be patient, when we talk about the call to be united... This is all based in the character of God, amen? This is all based in the character of God, which means if we function in light of this, can you imagine how beautiful of people we will be and how beautiful of a community we would be? I mean, just imagine a God for a second, even just imagine God like this. A God who is not generous, how would we describe a God who is not generous? Yeah, the Roman gods, the pagan gods, they demand everything from you, right? They don't give anything, they just take, right? That's paganism at its core, right? That's all other world religions, in fact, is a core. Every other world religion says you have to earn your salvation, you have to work for your salvation, you have to achieve a level of spirituality to be accepted by God, but instead Christianity tells us what? Salvation is a gift. As this is what Phil was talking about in his testimony. Even he's saying, "I realized there was there was nothing I could do. I realized I couldn't become good enough. I couldn't be perfect enough. I had to trust completely in the work of God of Jesus on the cross to find salvation. That's a generous God. Can you imagine a God who wasn't patient with you?" <laughs> Who here needs a patient God, <laughs> right? If we have a God who is impatient with us, then every time we mess up, He's there condemning us. Every time we make a mistake, He's there saying what we did wrong. Every time we do all this, whereas our God is a long-suffering God, our God is a patient God. Now, here's another one. Could you imagine a God who wasn't united? We describe God as Father, Son, Spirit perfect union, perfect relationship throughout all of eternity. Now, could you imagine a God who wasn't united? What would that look like? Well, now we're talking about a God who is conflicted with himself, a God who fights against himself, 
a God who challenges himself, and yet we, we have this joyous beauty as a church when we're united in Christ and we are one in Christ, we actually share in the blessing of a triune God. We get to share in the beauty of a perfect relationship of the triune God. That's part of the gospel story is for God to invite us into relationship with himself, a relationship of perf- perfect unity. And so this is the calling that James has before us. And so as we, we close our time together, let, let's just contemplate this. I'm going to invite you guys to just bow your heads in prayer for a minute. We need to pray about this. We need to see God in prayer about this. Because this isn't something that comes naturally to us. This isn't something that we can achieve on our own. Uh, Jesus, even as he was, he was talking about uh, a rich man entering the kingdom of God, he says this, it's like a camel trying to enter into the eye of a needle. It's impossible. But then Jesus says, with God, all things are possible. And so when we look at our own lives and we, we see our lack of generosity at times or when we look at our own life and we see a lack of patience or when we look at our own lives and we see a lack of unity, the hope that we have is, as Jesus says, is that all things are possible through God. And so I'm going to invite you just to have a time of confession on your own. I'll just leave a space and time for prayer here. Confess where you haven't been generous. Confess where you haven't been patient. Confess where you haven't been united with others. And Scripture reminds us that God is faithful and just to forgive us of all sins and that when we confess our sins, we actually find freedom and God transforms us from the heart and we share the heart of God and what He desires. So I'm just going to leave a time of silence space and time for you to enter in a conversation with God and pray and have that conversation with God here and now. Lord, we come in confession, acknowledging in the ways of generosity and patience and unity, we often fall so so short. We thank you that you are a God who is patient with us in light of that. We call on you here and now to forgive us of these sins, to forgive us of our unrighteousness, to forgive us of greed, to forgive us of impatience, to forgive us of disunity. Lord, we long to share your heart in this life. And Lord, we also come here to acknowledge a thankfulness that you do forgive our sins and that you are faithful and just to forgive us and you cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. Meaning that in you, we now have the power and the ability to be generous people. Lord, we know the generosity that we show to others comes from your heart. Lord, we know the patience that we have in this life comes from your character. And Lord, we know the unity that we have as a people despite differences and backgrounds and opinions comes from who you are as the triune God. And so we pray that we as a people would look to you the author and perfecter of our faith, meaning you are the one who created all things. You are the one who even give us these concepts to function out of, and you perfect them in us. And so we pray that you would be working in us by your Spirit to perfect generosity, to perfect patience, to perfect unity so that your name would be glorified and that we would be the beautiful community that would be a witness to the world and a joy to experience together. We thank you that you have gifted us in those ways. May we be faithful to endure in them. We pray this all for your glory and in the name of Jesus. And united we say, amen.